be a fi. There we go. Hey, guys. Good morning. Awesome. Hey, uh, a couple things before we get started. Number one, last week we had our business meeting, and I want to share with you the results of the, of the vote. We had uh, 32 people vote. 30, 32 ballots were, were given to us. Thir- uh, as far as the budget is concerned, we had 30 yeses, zero noes, and two abstentions, which is a fancy way of saying they didn't vote. Um, and then as far as our elders... Uh, we had 30 yeses, zero noes, sorry, 32 yeses, zero noes, and zero abstentions. Uh, so it was a unanimous vote for our elders and, and financial representatives. And so praising God for the unity that shows, and thank you to all who, who joined us last week to, to vote for that. I'm excited to walk into the new year uh, together with all of you. The other thing I want to say and share with you guys before we get moving today is that last week in my sermon I overspoke about something. I had a couple people in the church who confronted me about this, and I I respect that. I'm thankful for it, and so I want to address it. I don't only want to apologize for what I said. I also want to clarify what I should have said. So let me explain. Last week in my sermon, we were talking about Isaiah, and Isaiah prophesied that a virgin would give birth. I want to say 100% that is true, right? Isaiah did make that prophecy. Number two, that prophecy spoke about a sign that would be given to King Ahaz that God would deliver them. That's true. I also said that we know with certainty that God did deliver them. That's true. Absolutely. But then I also said that we know with certainty that a virgin gave birth to a baby in 735 BC. Is that true? (laughs) Uh, I said that with certainty— because that's what the prophecy said. However, like I said in the sermon last week, we actually aren't given a birth narrative. We don't see this baby come. We don't meet a virgin. We don't meet a baby. And so in all of this, I overspoke. The truth is that we're not told how this prophecy was fulfilled back then. We don't know what happened in 735 BC, because Isaiah doesn't go into the details to tell us what happened in 735 BC. We don't know with certainty that a virgin gave birth then. We're not told how it was immediately fulfilled, this prophecy. But what we are told, and what I want to be really clear about, is how this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled. That a baby was born to a virgin in about the year 5 B.C. We're told clearly that that happened in Matthew chapter 1, that this virgin's name was Mary and this baby's name was Jesus. That he is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Isaiah, and he's the one who came to save us from our sins, as the angel foretold. That's what we know for sure. So a few things as, as, I, as I reflect on this. Number one, I just want to say, I'm sorry, I overspoke there. I spoke more clearly than the Bible actually clearly says, and so I'm sorry for that. For, forgive me for that. I want to commit to be careful with God's word. This is God's living world. How, how dare I do, be anything but careful with it? Secondly, I want to invite you to join me in not being dogmatic about the things the Bible doesn't say clearly. <laughs> so join, join me in being careful with how we handle the Word of God. Let's be dogmatic and rigid about the things the Bible is dogmatic and rigid about, but if it's not, let's not be. Let's be humble and let's be open-minded. Although the Bible is very clear about a lot of things. <laughs> We're going to hold, hold strongly to those things. All right, number three, I'm thankful for the three people who did come and talk to me. Uh, about this. The three people who came to me and said, hey, 
I know you said that. Are you, are you sure about that? And the reason I wanted to come and make this a public recantation is because I imagine that they aren't the only three who are thinking it. And by your smiles, I, I, I see that's true. Um, also, I, I know that uh, as the pastor and elder of this church, we might be intimidated to confront the man with the microphone. Uh, just because I'm the man with a microphone doesn't make me any less able to make errors. And just because I'm the man with a microphone, that doesn't make me any less able to be confronted. So when I make errors, please say something. And if I've made an error, I commit to come up here and ask for your forgiveness. So I wanted to share that with you. I hope that clarifies things. But let's, let's dive into our Advent series today, continuing with it. The title of this series is God With Us. Places in the Bible story where we see God dwell with man in a unique way. At the beginning of the Bible, we see God dwell with Adam and Eve in the garden. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, however, they were cast out of the garden, cast out of this garden temple, cast out of the presence of God. Secondly, we went to the tabernacle and we saw that God gave Israel the plans to make this tabernacle that would be built right in the midst of the encampment. However, we saw that even though God dwelt in the midst of his people there in the middle of Israel, and even though the cloud came and descended on that tabernacle in, in uh, Exodus chapter 40, sin was still a barrier preventing men from walking right in and having fellowship with God. Sin is still an issue. And then last week we talked about how God came in the flesh. The Son of God came to save people from their sins, and in so doing, he removes the barrier to relationship. He removes the barrier of sin that separates us from God. And as we think back to these times, all of these examples of God's presence with men, they're incredible. They're awe-inspiring. They're miraculous. They, they wow us. But the stop that we're taking today on the tour of, our, of the temples that we're going through this Advent series, uh, this Advent season, I wonder if it's going to wow us a little bit less. I wonder if it might seem a little bit less miraculous to us, a little bit less awe-inspiring. And I wonder if that's because this temple we're a little bit more familiar with. The temple that we're talking about today, the place where God makes his presence dwell in a unique way today that we're focusing on, is one that's still happening right now, right here on earth. In fact, it's happening right here in this room. In John chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and, and this is what he says. He says, I am going to him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, I'm about to leave. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. Jesus Christ is the Son of God in the flesh, and he says he's about to go. He's going to return to God the Father, and when he goes, he's going to send the Helper. He's going to send God the Spirit. See the Trinity working together here? God the Son going to God the Father to send God the Spirit. And so what we see is that Jesus ascends to heaven, and we soon read in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, or 2 four through 4, actually, that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they, the believers, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on, on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to one and uh, to uh, speak in other tongues, sorry, as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is what Jesus was talking about back in John chapter 16. God the Son sending God the Spirit from God the Father. And these believers, they spill out into the streets. They declare the mighty acts of God in all of these different languages. And that day, 3,000 people joined the church. This is the birth of the church. This is the beginning of the Spirit-united, gospel-united people of God. And from this point forward, what we know is that God dwells with his people. Only now he's not dwelling in a garden. He's not dwelling in a tent. He's not dwelling in a building. He's not dwelling in a person. He's dwelling in every single person. <laughs> he's not dwelling with his people, we might say. He's dwelling in his people, in the church. And so here on the earth today, there is no physical temple. We don't need a physical temple because we are the temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament authors, on a couple of occasions, it's really remarkable, they, they play upon this idea of us being a temple by describing us, the people of God, as a physical building. They use a metaphor, talking about us being a physical building. And so we're going to focus in on one passage in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, open up there. We're going to focus in there. That's going to be our home base. But we are going to look at some of the other places where we are described as a physical brick-and-mortar building. And what this has to show us about being the temple of God today on earth. So as we turn there, let's pause. Let's pray one more time, asking the Lord to help us understand this and to worship. Heavenly Father, use this. Help me speak clearly. Help me speak truthfully. And help this word not only move us to worship, but move us to obedience and move us to delight. <laughs> God, we know we, we want that. Our hearts want that. And we know you want that too. So we ask that boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 18. Paul is in uh, Corinth. He preaches the gospel. He plants a church and then he leaves. Acts chapter 19, a man named Apollos, another teacher, goes to Corinth and he picks up where God, where, where Paul leaves off. And so in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth and he's doing so for many reasons. But in chapter 3 of the letter, he confronts them about one issue in particular. That's the issue of divisions amongst them in the church. Some of the people in Corinth are saying, I follow Paul and, and his teachings. Others are saying, I follow Apollos. And his teaching, and Paul is saying, you're acting like a bunch of spiritual babies. <laughs> don't, be, don't be ridiculous. Stop it. That's what he says in verse 5 and following. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. You are God's field. God's building. That's how it ends. So what's Paul saying? 
He's using an agricultural metaphor. It's pretty easy to understand. It's one we're actually pretty familiar with. The idea that he's saying is that he, Paul, he planted the seeds of the gospel in the field, in their, in their community. He shared the message of Jesus Christ. He told it to them. And the gospel has the ability to produce life. It's like a seed, right? And then Apollos, another teacher, came behind him to tend to that field, to water those seeds, to nurture the gospel message in them. And so he's saying, God used us, but that doesn't make you ours. God used us to plant and to tend to this field, but that doesn't mean that you are our followers. You are God's field, it says here. God gave you growth. God did all of this. You are, you are his. But then Paul switches metaphors. I don't know if you caught this in verse 9. He says, you are God's field, God's building. He switches from an agricultural metaphor to a construction metaphor. And so let's keep reading because he's going to continue with this idea of building in, in verse 10. More of us are builders than farmers, so maybe this will connect with us a little bit better. Starting in verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I, Paul, laid a foundation. And someone else, presumably Apollos, is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. It's a building metaphor. <laughs> and he's, he's making the same point as he was making back with the agricultural metaphor. It's the same idea. Before, Jesus was described as a seed, a seed from which life springs. Here, he's described as the foundation, the foundation of a building upon which the community is built. Before, Paul was the one that planted the Jesus seed. Here, Paul is the one who lays the Jesus foundation. Before, Apollos is the one who nurtures and cultivates that, feed, that seed, watering it and caring for it. And here, Apollos is the one who builds upon that foundation, building upon that Jesus foundation that, that Paul laid. This is cool. <laughs> it's so visual, you can see it. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of the church ba- built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. I mean, this isn't something that's unique here either. Peter uses the same metaphor in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone, and we are like living stones built upon him as a spiritual house. It's, it's the same idea. Or listen to what Paul says again in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 21, that we are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The point is simple. The point is that God builds his church upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. The church grows as people align themselves upon Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. Everything is built upon him. The church is built upon Jesus Christ. That's the first point that I just want to pound into our heads this morning. The church is built upon Jesus Christ. Now, why why does that matter? What does that mean for us today in 2022 in Alton? Well, I think it means a couple things. Paul says it so clearly here, though, right? For, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. And what that means is if you and I are built upon Christ, then we 
all of us are united together as one building. When we are built upon Christ, we have unity. We say that we are a Christ-centered family to communicate the same thing. We are only together as one family because we are united to Christ. If we're not built upon Jesus Christ, we don't have unity. But when we are built upon Christ, we do have unity. That's the first thing it means. The second thing it means is that if we stay rooted to the rock of ages, we have a firm foundation. A firm foundation that will not be shaken. When we are built upon Jesus Christ, we don't just have unity, we have stability. Our faith is built upon something that will not shake and will not move, but is steady and secure and will be until the day he comes again. The third thing that this means is that if any church lays a foundation other than Jesus Christ, it's not a church. It may look like a church. It might be a nice bunch of nice people gathered together, but if it is built upon anything other than Jesus Christ, it is not a church. When we build a church upon Jesus Christ, we have unity, we have stability, and we have identity. We are nothing without Jesus Christ. We find our unity, our stability, our identity only when we build ourselves upon the foundation of Jesus. Now, of course, there are some institutions that act like churches but, but aren't churches, and there's a, maybe an obvious example is the Unitarian Universalist Association. They, they don't even use the word church, and so to their, to their credit, uh, they don't really claim to be a church. But in many ways, they look like a church. Their groups are called congregations. Their gatherings are called worship. Their leaders are called reverends. They act like a church. But even though they don't, even though they look like a church, because their organization is not built upon the rock of ages, it's a castle in the clouds. It doesn't have a sturdy foundation. It's not, they, they don't have a foundation for actual unity. They don't have a reason upon which they could look for stability or to find clear and lasting identity. But the thing is, I don't think very many of us are tempted towards becoming universalists uh, in this room. However, at the same time, I don't think that we are immune to this happening even in our own church. I think that even we, who call ourselves a Christ-centered family, are prone to lose our Jesus foundation. Only, in our situation, it happens a lot more slowly and a lot more subtly, maybe a lot more sinisterly, a lot more sneakily, right? When we swap the gift for the gift giver. We do it when we swap the gift for the gift giver. Does that make sense? We can lose our foundation when we build our church not upon the gift giver, but the gifts he gives. <laughs> when we begin to seek and celebrate the good things that are ours in Jesus Christ, rather than seeking and celebrating Jesus Christ himself. That's sneaky. When we start to do that, our foundation begins to erode. We're not actually looking for him. We're not actually looking for relationship. What we're looking for is the good things that we can find in him. So for, for example, we could gather together here every week and I could pull out the Bible and I could use this Bible to give you a lot of really good principles to live a really good, happy, easy life in many ways. I could give you principles from this book that help you grieve when you lose someone you love. 
that helps you have a healthy marriage, even maybe fix your marriage. Stuff from this book that might help you become a good parent, that encourages you in your loneliness. Maybe how to even find and use your spiritual gifts. All of these things are good. All of these things are practical. And how, how could we not do those things? Yet, we can do all of that and still forget that all of these things are only ours if we are in Christ. <laughs> None of these things are actually ours if we are not in Christ. We can begin to seek the gifts rather than seeking the gift giver, Jesus Christ. And so without Jesus Christ as our foundation, we will, we will lose our unity We'll just be a a group of friends looking for good life advice. But with Jesus Christ, we are a Christ-centered family. A true, spiritual, eternal unity. Better than anything the world can offer. Without Jesus as our foundation, we lose our our stability. After all, what happens when a storm in life tosses our gifts out the window? We might come to church and work on having a healthy marriage, but what happens when our spouse passes away? We might come to church looking for principles to be good parents. What, what do we do when our, parent, when our kids walk away? Without Jesus Christ as our foundation, we have nothing left to stand upon, but with Jesus Christ, we have a firm foundation, the rock of ages, which will never move and will never be shaken. Without Jesus as our foundation, we lose our identity. We're not even a church. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But with Jesus, we are a temple. A temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time. The Bible calls us a temple. Paul says it just a couple verses later. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Uh, That's the the English version. Let me read for you the Texan version of this this text. It says, Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? In, In the Greek, there's a plural you. And in Texas, there's a plural you. I encourage you to adopt it. Um, But this plural you is the point of this passage. That's what Paul actually writes here. Y'all are a temple. It's true. He says in other passages that your body is a temple. So it's true. The Holy Spirit does live in you as an individual. But this is getting at the point that he lives in you corporately. As a body. As a family. All of us together. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or again, as Paul so clearly says in Ephesians chapter 2, in Christ we are joined together and grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are a temple. If you are built, if we are built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, we are a gospel-united, spirit-filled people of God. We are the temple today. So why does that matter today? If we're the temple, how how does that actually affect the way that we live? How does that actually shape our lives? Why do we find encouragement in that? How do we find any help at all in knowing that we are the temple today? There's, There's three reasons. 
three reasons why it matters that we're the temple today, that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. Since we are the temple today, number one, we have relationship. Since we are the temple today, we have relationship with God. I mean, you think back to Adam and Eve. Their sin separated them from God. Think back to Israel. Their sin caused there still to be a barrier between them and God, the curtains of this temple. Sin has been a problem all the way throughout, but then when Jesus came, he came to defeat the sin issue. He came to take away the reason that we had that separation, that barrier. There's no more barrier for us anymore. There's no more reason for separation anymore. If our sin by faith in Jesus Christ is removed, we have no reason to stay apart from him. We can have unity with him. We can have relationship with him. We can have intimacy with him. For the first time since the garden, Jesus has made it possible for us to have intimate, personal relationship with God. No separation, no barrier. Not only do we not need to deal with sin anymore, offering lambs and sacrifices at the altar because Jesus did that for us, but we also don't need to go to a building anymore because he is with us where we are. We don't have to deal with sin and we don't have to go anywhere. All we have to do is turn and speak to him, pray to him, and he will be with us as, as a comforter, as a friend, as an encourager, an ever-present help in time of trouble. Because we are the temple today, church, we have a relationship with God. That's the first implication. That's the first reason why we can celebrate the fact that we are the temple. Reason number two, since we are the temple today, we are called to holiness. Since we are the temple today, we are called to holiness and righteousness. Again, we're forgiven. We're, we're made holy. And because of that, we're able to have intimate relationship with God. And the Bible calls us very clearly all over the place to seek to live holy lives, to put away what's earthly in us, to live righteous lives. I mean, we've been in 1 John. We'll get back to 1 John after this. John pounds that into our heads over and over and over again, all the way throughout the book. I mean, but Paul says it here, 1 Corinthians 3, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. It's our job to be holy. And when I think about my marriage, or our marriages, it's, it's a good picture of how faith and continued holiness work, actually. Because I made a covenant with my wife, and because of that covenant promise, I know that that relationship is not going to come to an end. I also know I'm going to sin against her. I'm not going to try to, but I'm going to. I do sin against my wife all the time. I ask for forgiveness, and then I sin again. <laughs> However, because we're in a covenant marriage relationship, I know that when I sin against her, she's not going to leave. My sin does not destroy that covenant. It's eternal. It's fixed. Our union is going nowhere. However, when I sin, our communion is changed, right? Sin doesn't ruin our union with our spouse, but it does ruin our communion with our spouse. We feel not as close with them. When I sin against Olivia, we have a hard time looking at each other in the eyes for a little bit after that. As we seek restoration and reconciliation, it takes us a while to rebuild that intimacy, but to rebuild that trust, to rebuild that, that communion. 
And I think the same thing happens with our relationship with God. We have a covenant relationship with God. It's not going anywhere. We sin. We ask for forgiveness. And that union, it's, it's fixed. It's steady. It's secure. It's, you're not going to lose it. You can't lose it. However, when you sin, that intimacy with God is affected. Your sin, your sin builds a, a barrier of closeness between you and God. When, when you sin, I don't know about you, for me, it makes it more difficult to pray. More difficult to feel close with my God. And so because of that, as the holy people of God, as the temple, we seek to live holy lives. To stay in close relationship with our God. And when we do sin, we turn back to him in repentance. We turn back to him seeking his forgiveness. I find in my life, yes, sin feels like a barrier of, of communion with my God. I also find that repentance restores that intimacy. It helps rebuild that communion that I share with my God. So because we are the temple today, number one, yeah, we have relationship with him. But number two, we seek to live holy lives. Finally, number three, since we are the temple today, we're on mission. Relationship, holiness, and mission. Paul planted, Apollos watered, watered. God gave the growth. They were just doing the work of building the temple as the temple, continuing to add living stones upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And because we are the temple today, we are called to join in that mission of building the temple, to join them in the mission of adding more stones, living stones, upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Only today, think about this, we don't bring our neighbors and bring our nations to come and meet God at a physical temple. Rather, because we are the temple, we go and we bring God to our neighbors. We go and we bring God to the nations. We join with Paul and Apollos to bring God to the world until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. So be free. Go forth and build the temple Go forth and call others to join us in this united building. How do we do that? By adding to the temple, by pointing people to Jesus Christ. Building them upon that firm foundation in whom we live and move and have our beings. Jesus Christ. Since we are the temple today, we have relationship with God. We're called to live holy lives. And number three, we're called to join him in his mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we find peace even just knowing that you're never far off. You're, you're close to us. That you've come to make your home within us. You've come to make us one together. Uh, a building where your spirit dwells, a, a, a united temple. And Father, we pray that this metaphor of us being a building that we see in the New Testament would actually give shape to what it, it looks like for us to, to shine your light in this world, Lord. God, help us as we seek continued and ever-deepening relationship with you. God, help us live lives of holiness. 
And finally, Lord, help us as we live on mission. We're thankful that we're not doing this alone, but we're doing this with you in us and one another beside us. We love you, Lord. We give all of this to you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.